Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. Today we have Noam Oshender and Terry Williams from the Chicago Gun Violence Research Collaborative. We also have Samantha Lanis, our Center's Strategic Operations Director, joining us for the first time to facilitate this discussion because gun violence prevention is one of her greatest passions. Noam and Terry and Samantha, would you all like to introduce yourselves? Hello, my name is Terry Williams. I am currently a student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I am studying public health um, in the master's program there. Uh, Specifically, uh, my concentration is uh, community health sciences. I am from Chicago, born and raised uh, in the Inglewood community. Um, I would say the Inglewood community has made me very resilient uh, to the point where it kind of orchestrated a lot of, you know, uh, helped me navigate through a lot of things throughout Chicago, uh, which kind of navigated me to, to uh, go into college. I am a graduate of Northern Illinois University, uh, where I studied undergrad, where I then was uh, hired on with the Northern Illinois University Police Department. So I transferred back here uh, to Chicago, uh, where I currently work for the University of Illinois at Chicago um, Police Department, um, where I'm, I just recently was promoted about two years ago to sergeant. Um, I feel like that's very important uh, for equity to actually recognize uh, for people from underprivileged backgrounds uh, being promoted into different positions where they can make a change. And I, I feel like I'm in that great position to do so uh, when it comes to public safety and public health. Hi, I'm Noam Ostrander. Uh, I uh, I'm uh, on faculty at DePaul University in the Department of Social Work, uh, though I also have a background in public health. Um, I've been in Chicago now for um, just about 20 years, and basically my entire time in Chicago has been dedicated to the topic of community gun violence. Uh, When I first started working in Chicago, uh, I worked with uh, gang-affiliated individuals who had been shot and paralyzed, um, and sort of figured out how to help them reintegrate uh, into life and how to um, how to adjust to having a significant disability. Um, and I think as I've continued uh, working uh, around these topics, I've transferred to, to different aspects of it, to looking at trauma deserts or um, looking at uh, gun uh, violence prevention policy uh, and to now uh, being able to lead the Chicago Gun Violence Research Collaborative that really brings together universities and hospital systems from across Chicago uh, to uh, sort of bring the tremendous resources that these institutions have to look at uh, root causes of gun violence. Thank you, Noam and Terry, so much for being here. I'm Samantha Alanis, the Strategic Operations Director with the Center for Health Equity Transformation. I'm excited to facilitate this conversation today because my background is actually in public policy and gun violence prevention is one of the issues that I 
prioritize and find extremely important uh, and think that we need to have a more holistic conversation about ways to address root causes to prevent gun violence. It's also something that has personally affected me even from an earlier age. So I look forward to diving into this conversation with you. And later in this conversation, we will be joined by Valerie Burgest, who is a community member and volunteer with Moms Demand Action. Valerie has been personally affected by gun violence as well. All right, thank you, Valerie, for joining us. Will you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in this work? Well, my name is Valerie Burgess. I started doing volunteer work for Moms Demand Action a few years ago. And the reason I became involved with Moms Demand is because my son, Craig Williams, was shot and killed on the south side of Chicago on December 28, 2013. And, and so for me... I needed to have a pathway or an avenue in order to help deal with the pain of losing my son. He was my only son. He was my only child. And so I I needed to have some type of way to cope. And I kind of stumbled across Mom's Demand by accident. I, I came across a Wear Orange event that was down the street from where I was living at the time and signed up to become involved and gradually became more and more involved each day. Um, as part of my work with Moms Demand, I also work with Every Child Survivor Network, who is, for lack of a better word, the parent company of Moms Demand Action. And they also have what they call a Survivor Fellow Program that you apply for, and I applied and was accepted. And what the Survivor Fellow Program does is it teaches us how to go out and tell our story and to advocate to get people involved in trying to end senseless gun violence. So between Every Town and Moms Demand, it has given me a platform where I can raise my voice, I can speak as Craig because he's not here to speak for himself. So I've become his spokesperson. And and so I tell my story, I elevate my voice, and through elevating my voice, I elevate his voice. And I, I tell people who I am and who he is um, because I, I really don't speak of him in the past tense. I speak of him in the present tense because he still is a big part of my heart and a big part of my life. And so that's how I became involved in this work. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Valerie. And uh, we look forward to having you join our conversation. If you have any questions for Noman Terry, please feel free to chime in at any point. So I'll go ahead and get started. And uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about the Chicago Gun Violence uh, Research Collaborative. And... I was hoping that when you describe the work that you're doing, that you could also tell us a little bit more about what you mean by research activism and creating a community-driven research framework. Sure. Uh, I'll start. This is Noam. Um, So the uh, collaborative began uh, around 2016, um, and essentially it it sort of began with an op-ed piece um, from the CEO of uh, Mount Sinai uh, Hospital, uh, or for the, the Sinai Health System. And from there, there was a, a partnership that emerged um, with America's Urban Campus um, and Sinai Health System that brought together uh, several folks who were uh, doing research um, on gun violence uh, in Chicago. And sort of from there, um, the collaborative was, was launched. Um, 
and in 2017 uh, to 2018, we did a series of community listening sessions. Um, and this really was trying to understand community gun violence and in the notion of research uh, from the community perspective. And I think through that, the notion of research activism and really this community-driven research framework emerged. Um, so what uh, sort of is traditional university community research uh, involves uh, some researcher from a university going into a minoritized community, um, doing a project that they have in mind, uh, wrapping that up and then leaving and publishing those results and uh, you know, using that to build the rest of their research agenda. What we're trying to do is that we're trying to flip that on its head. Um, and so we're looking at uh, essentially providing uh, as much of the resources as we can to communities um, both uh, individuals and organizations um, in terms of saying we have we have some expertise that may be helpful whether it's uh, doing program evaluation or grant writing or whatnot um, and the communities have the knowledge there's so many fantastic uh, community organizations that are functioning uh, right now and doing great work but may not have the capacity to uh, either expand that work or get notoriety that they need so that they can write for more grants and, and whatnot. So really the, the research activism is a is an acknowledgement that um, this is a very political process of, of doing research. Um, and what our hope is, is that we can use the, the research piece and the data and the community can own that data and the results of that research um, to uh, help further um, how resources are allocated to communities, um, both in terms of grants, in terms of schools, in terms of, of uh, city attention, that's not necessary CPD resources, and, and how we can help to just sort of push that process along to, to empower the communities. And what's your approach to engaging community organizations? Um, so we have some fantastic people who are part of our steering committee who um, have been working in Chicago communities for a long time. Um, and I think what we have benefited from is sort of all these resources that we have sort of collectively as, as members of, of the collaborative um, and sort of the goodwill that we've generated in working with communities for decades and so the communities have been have been fantastic at hosting us um, at sort of sharing their knowledge uh, we host uh, the listening sessions um, within community organizations um, we as much as possible try to pay people for their time and feed people and so uh, I think the the community organizations have have been um, very welcoming uh, at the same time They've been very honest about. Look, we have. We feel in some ways that we have been victimized by researchers um, uh, who just sort of come in and leave, and then we don't have. We still don't have anything. We don't know. Um, we don't know how much money transpires. So there's been a lot of stuff about um, transparency in research. Uh, so if researchers get are getting paid, why aren't organizations getting paid? And one of the things that I uh, sort of a pet project of mine is pushing uh, in grants. Uh, usually universities or hospitals have indirect costs associated with grants. Um, I'm trying to see if there can be a way of having indirect costs for community organizations that, that do aspects of this because certainly um, getting general revenue funds is very tough for, for organizations and they, they spend their time and their energy and their wisdom with us. Um, and there's an equity issue there that's very important. And Terry, you mentioned that you come from a law enforcement background and you're interested in approaching this issue uh, from both a public safety and public health perspective. 
How do you go into communities and earn trust when a lot of times there's an existing distrust with communities and law enforcement? That's a good question. Um, well, that's a difficult task. I could tell you uh, that much uh, because it's definitely an historical background behind uh, people's uh, resentment towards uh, law enforcement, uh, particularly in underserved and uh, disinvested communities. Um, I just want to go back what Noam had mentioned, uh, very well articulated, was um, you know community-based participatory research. Uh, CBPR is exactly what he just outlined. Um, and it's really walking parallel with the community and an institution. And that can be an institution from the police department, that can be an institution from academic, you know, on the academic side, and it can be an institution from the business side. A lot of people over, overlook the business side of things or the corporate side of things as well um, when it comes to foundations, um, obviously academics with the research, and then police department with different resources uh, that they can engage in to break that barrier. So specifically to your question, um, when you think about CBPR, it's really taking a, you know, if you look at it like an ethnographic approach, uh, you have to immerse yourself within that culture, learn the culture. If you're not, you know, a lot of officers are not like me. There are a, a, a higher amount now in 2019 than it was 20 years ago. Um, when I say like me, have, have a background from being from Chicago or inner city uh, neighborhood or being a black male growing up within Chicago. Um, there are, like I said, it's a good percentage now in law enforcement, but it's, it's not like it was 20 years ago. So you think about 20, 30, 40 years ago um, when you had systemic issues going on and that's just kind of uh, took away a lot of that distrust when it comes to any organization, uh, when it comes to an institution level and a police department, it causes resentment. So. Um, I would say police departments uh, today are taking that approach when it comes to community policing. So uh, obviously Chicago has the CAPS program. You know, our department at UIC, we have uh, the PACE program. Um, and basically it's a community uh, engagement uh, aspect of things. Uh, and I believe that, you know, as police departments, you know, you just can't say you just have a group of officers who just do community policing. You have to have the entire culture of the department change. How do you do that? You look at things on an equity standpoint. You take that CB, uh, CBPR, which is that uh, participatory um, you know, approach for officers to get engaged, researchers on academic level to get engaged, corporate representatives to, to get engaged in these uh, different town hall meetings that uh, communities may have, um, different discussions that they may host, um, different meetings you know, uh, that they may host. Um, one thing that I want to mention is in Inglewood, we have something called a quality of life plan. Uh, it's a community-driven program that is uh, that, come, that strategies are developed directly from community residents and stakeholders, okay? Um, and this program definitely, um, I could say, outlines um, the approach where it needs to be when like, strategies are um, developed by the community members. So us as institutions, 
need to come in and look at these strategies and not come in and say, oh, okay, you need this, you need that, uh, and have that kind of sending, you know, kind of natural kind of sending nature, but actually come in and look at those strategies, say, how can I help you? How can I support you? Like Noam had mentioned, how can I build your capacity? How can I, I can lend a researcher to you. I can lend an accountant to you. I can, I can lend a uh, executive uh, coach to you. Mm -hmm. you know, to help you sustain your program versus me coming in for a second playing jump rope with the kids and then I'm gone and I have another officer that's on patrol have a bad inter interaction with you. Mm -hmm. So it's about changing that culture within these organizations, changing that culture within these institutions uh, to actually um, make change. And was that quality of life plan developed by Teamwork Inglewood or another institution? So Teamwork Inglewood definitely um, is one of the navigators of the program. They are, uh, I could say, the parent organization um, of the program right now, uh, currently. Um, it was different community-based um, programs that was a part of uh, developing that program, uh, like RAGE, uh, the Residence Association for Greater Inglewood, uh, the uh, Imagine Inglewood If was also a part of that program, uh, Think Outside the Block. Um, it's another organization that was a part of that program. There's different organizations that that engage in, in these different task forces. It's a program that, that uh, has five different task forces. Um, the public safety, education, uh, and youth uh, development, uh, health and wellness, housing, and I'm missing one more. Oh, jobs and economic. Uh, development. Uh, those different uh, task forces are different agendas uh, that came from community residents and community stakeholders mm -hmm. and, and their strat specific strategies under that plan. So I'm just using that plan as an example because it's other neighborhoods. Uh, I believe in, uh, North Lindale has a similar plan uh, that you can look at. There are already strategies, uh, strategies in place and organizations, institutions can come in and help where they can. Valerie, from your perspective, what would you like to see from the collaborative and how it engages survivors? Well, I would like to see them do more work um, with survivors to help them understand that they have a voice, to help them feel that they are empowered in raising their voice. So many of what happens in our communities is because people feel disenfranchised and they feel hopeless and they really don't feel like they have a voice. Many times people don't understand the power that comes behind casting a single vote, for example, and how that can go a long way toward changing the quality of life in their neighborhoods. So I would like to see stronger collaborations. As Mom Demand Action, one of the roles that I've taken on most recently is the co-lead for the state of Illinois chapter for Moms Demand. And so every town in Moms Demand has talked a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially over the last year, and really wanting the chapters to be more diverse and to be more inclusive. Well, we've struggled in Chicago with engaging other survivors, and we've struggled with engaging people within the communities where violence is most impacted. And primarily the reason why we have struggled with that is because one of the things that the gentleman just said, coming in, jumping rope and leaving. And so we were perceived 
is primarily a suburban white woman's organization and coming in to the city to help with an event or to help them do something and then going back home to the suburbs where they live and people were looking at us and saying, what do you know about my life and what do you know about the quality of my life? And so I would like to see stronger collaborations. And as the chapter co-lead, that's most certainly the direction that I'm trying to steer um, at least within the city limits in in Chicago, that we can be more collaborative, we can be more diverse. I'm a perfect example of that diversity and that inclusion as being an African-American woman who lost her son um, to gun violence. My circumstances in terms of my socioeconomic status may not be the same, but at the end of the day, we all suffer from the loss of our children. So... I would just like to see us be more collaborative. I'd like to see the collaborative reach out more. You you mentioned a lot of organizations that we have done work with in Inglewood, and we're really trying to strengthen those collaborations. So I would really like to become more involved with the Collaborative Research Network and see how we can help and how we can be a stronger partner. I do agree we can't go into communities and say that this is how you should live and this is what you should do, but go into communities and say how can how how can we be of service? How can we help? What is it that you need from us? So I would really very much welcome the opportunity to be more collaborative with the research collaboration. And and then there's other I didn't hear anybody mention Good Kids, Mad City, because we, we talk a lot about getting the youth involved, and, and they're up and coming in a pretty strong organization of youth activists who should be bought into the conversation. Thank you for sharing that. I think that those are some great ideas for ways they could expand their reach. Uh, so I heard all of you mention that there are disconnects between when research is conducted how it's reported back to the community. And then there's also a disconnect between that and policymaking. So what ideas do you each have for addressing that disconnect and bridging the gaps between these areas? For me, what that would definitely look like would be, I can't remember the gentleman who was talking, I think it was the executive director, who said that we can take the research, we can take the data that we collect as a result of our our research and go back into the community. Because the data that's collected is really not new to the residents who live there. They already know that they live where there's food deserts. They already know they have substandard housing. They already know that they have high unemployment rates. So I, but one of the things he said that I really liked was how we can take that data and go back into the communities and say, okay, this is what the data says. What is it that you want to do with it? How can we use this data to change the narrative? How can we take this data and come up with programs that are going to be a benefit to the community. Uh, and thank you for that, Valerie. That was uh, really well said. Um, I think it's also a matter of um, who's asking the questions, right? Um, so, so many times it's researchers who are outside of communities asking questions or policymakers asking questions. I think the questions have to come from within the community because, as, as Valerie noted, um, people living in the community, they know they know the answers. They they know they they're not unaware of of surroundings and of of um, 
both uh, assets and uh, and sort of deficits of communities. Um, and it's a matter of sort of elevating those voices and giving uh, sort of more capacity to elevate that. Um, you know, and I think that uh, one of the, I think one of the challenges, and we've thought about this, and I think anybody who's done probably work uh, around this has encountered it, um, there are so many organizations doing some part of this work that it's hard to keep track of who's doing what and and how to sort of almost create a summit um, on that, which I think would help unite voices. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, as, as Valerie was talking about Moms Demand Action, I was also thinking about a program called Chicago Survivors, um, which I think launched uh, maybe six or seven years ago now. Um, that is uh, an organization that when somebody gets shot in the city, um, they deploy to sort of go be with family and loved ones and, and will help sort of walk with them through the legal process. They'll go with, uh, with family if needed to identify uh, a body um, and really do a great job of serving as sort of a conduit between um, family members, communities, and uh justice system. I think that it is difficult to, to know who all is doing what, and I think if we can figure out how to unite these groups, I think that we can have a, a stronger impact and, and really elevate the voice of the community. And again, recognizing that the, the, the voice has to be the communities, that it can't be, uh, it can't be somebody outside of the communities. And um, to your point, Moms Demand and Chicago Survivors, we actually do work very closely um, with each other. Um, here in Chicago. And in fact, we're having a joint, we're coming together to sponsor a vigil in December. Um, that happens every year nationally and in local cities. Um, that was put together about seven years ago after Sandy Hook. And so in Chicago, we're having a national vigil in December, and we're collaborating and co-sponsoring the event with Chicago Survivors. Um, the other piece of that, we have local groups um, throughout the state, and our local Hyde Park Southside group is led by um, one of the volunteers with Chicago Survivors as well. So we do work very closely together. And we've been trying to strategize on how we can be more of a presence um, in the communities that we want to reach out to. And to every town's credit, they have recognized that legislation is not always the pathway to change that there has to be boots on the ground that we have to get out and we have to work with other organizations that are doing the grassroots work and be part of, of the things that are going on within the community so we do definitely work with Chicago survivors and we have another volunteer who works very closely with teamwork Inglewood and rage <laughs> um, so we're trying to become more visible and hopefully be more impactful. So uh, Valerie had mentioned uh, like the strategies as well as the unknown. And I think that's important to connect um, the, the research that's being done uh, to the policy. Uh, how do you look at it on a practical standpoint? Um, these, like Nomad mentioned, these issues are not new. Um, like Valerie mentioned, the residents, they all know about the issues. It's, very well articulated. We actually have plans in place, you know, strategies in place. Uh, so it's, it's already documented of the needs. Uh, so how do we build that framework? Um, I think connecting the framework to the funding, you know, that's 
be totally honest during, during this conversation. The funding is needed. Where's the money? You know, we need to find the money. We need support financially uh, to these uh, community-based organizations. Uh, like Noam had mentioned, you know, if you look at the logistics of things, when it comes to grant funding, these indirect costs, why can't community-based organizations get indirect costs? You know, when it comes to the work that they're already doing daily, you know, why can't uh, these academic and corporate uh, institutions, you know, build in a community-based um, project that's going to fund these community-based organizations? Uh, this is the framework that's needed to connect a policy like a funding source, uh, the policy uh, that's overseeing this this funding um, directly pipeline down to the community-based organization. So we already know that what the needs are. It's already written. It's already documented. You know, so it's, it's actually executing uh, this mission, executing these strategies. And that, I think that's the best way to execute the strategies is connecting uh, the funding. When I can, when I say funding, that's support. You can articulate it different ways. You know. Um, Support funding, you know, capacity. However, you want to look at it, uh, you can look, you can throw out the buzzwords all you want, but is it really coming towards the community? You know, is the research given back to the community? Is it their research, or is this for somebody's um, to you know publicize it in a scholarly uh, journal? So, I think that's very important for us to to look at. Uh, the framework and how do we support that framework and build on that. Terry, I know you had mentioned the importance of working with youth and some of your involvement with organizations that uh, involve youth in the process. So could you tell us a little bit about why it's so important to involve youth and how you're engaging Chicago's youth in the work of the Research Collaborative. Uh, so the, the youth is very important uh, because one of the themes, I can go back to the collaborative, one of the themes that came up is investing in our youth to overcome um, adverse childhood childhood experiences and increase their opportunity. Um, that's one of the themes that a lot of uh, uh, the stakeholders that we interviewed, uh, they mentioned. And Engaging in a youth or an individual, if you just look at a, a person, an individual, early enough, it changes their mindset uh, to combat their environment. They're, they're going through these different traumatic experiences um, because of the nature of their environment. So how do you support um, or divert you know, them going through these experiences? I can tell you a little bit about myself. How I did it was through sports. You know, I know that's a cliche. Oh, just go play basketball. Oh, go play football. That's a cliche. But it, it was a different activity that got me away from the environment that I was born and raised in. You know, it, it was going away and getting exposed to different things, you know, when I went off to uh, college in DeKalb. You know, because you look at you look at things in a different perspective. You look at things in a different lens. So how do you increase opportunity? You increase uh, the youth's exposure, saying there's something more out there than just your environment that you're in right now. You can actually be involved in this project. You can actually not, a lot of people, okay, you can be a doctor, lawyer, that's successful. But you can actually be a postper, you know, a postman a woman. Uh, you can actually um, work, in um, work in the corporate world. Um, it's an organization called the Urban, Chicago Urban League. 
Um, as we in my fraternity, uh, I'm a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Um, we have, um, you know, the Kappa League, where we engage in uh, the youth early, so they can wear the shirt and tie, they can have the jacket, they can feel they can feel empowered. You know, so you have to empower the youth early, so they know that this is not all that's around me. Mm-hmm. You know, violence, dysfunction you know, how to resolve conflict. So changing that culture, changing that mindset, that's why it's really important to, to address that. And specifically in my engagement, I'm not too much engaged in the youth um, task force within uh, the quality of life plan, but there are so many people that's, that, 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 that is uh, involved in it. Um, so that, that would be my perspective is, is expose them early, engage them early, uh, to, to address the issues that they have going on on a daily uh, basis. So uh, I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. I can jump in on that as well. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, we have so many amazing uh, examples of the way that uh, youth have sort of taken charge and led on some significant policy issues. Um, yes, there's the Newtown folks. Um, I'm also thinking of uh, fearlessly leading youth um, who uh, played a big role in getting uh, University of Chicago's hospital uh, back up to doing level one trauma status uh, uh, work uh, on the south side. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the, the campouts uh, in the city uh, past few years or so. Um, and so I think there's sort of been a significant uh history of ageism on a lot of policy work in terms of uh, these kids don't know anything, you know, let the let the adults uh, handle this. But, you know, it would be um, it would be and it has been a significant error, I think, to ignore uh, people who are perhaps most affected uh, by community gun violence in Chicago um, to not have them as part of it. And one of the things that we're working on in the collaborative. uh, So this this year with the fellows program is our first year that we're having community fellows, um, not just university fellows. Um, and then next year, uh, as we sort of roll this out, will be the year that we uh, have youth fellows uh, as part of the collaborative um, as well. And I should note, all the fellows get the same amount of money. So it's not as though the university folks get more money than community folks will. And then once we have youth in there, it's not like the youth are going to get uh, sort of a, a smaller stipend. Um, you know, that's part of the commitment. Um, is to treat everybody equally and to elevate it. Um, my my goal, and I think the goal of, of everybody who's uh, involved in the collaborative, is to make sure that we um, can run the fellows program well, and that's one reason why we're sort of doing these slow rollouts uh, to make sure we you know develop our own capacity uh, as we're as we're moving forward. I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of ageism. I once had a student tell me that there's no such thing as people without a voice, there are the people who are intentionally silenced, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a very powerful quote. Um, So could you uh, elaborate a bit on what you think happens along the way where maybe as adults become adults that Mm -hmm. they forget what it was like to be a young person Mm -hmm. and uh, things that we could do to lift up the voices of young people? Sure. Uh, So for a while I was on the... um, 
on the advisory board for Illinois Caucus on Adolescent Health. Um, and I feel like they have done really just a fantastic job, um, I think not only in educating me, uh, but in educating uh, a lot of the groups uh, that they interact with on the, the issues of ageism. And I think that they have been also very intentional in their work about making sure that there are leadership roles for youth. Um, and, you know, I, I see it I see it all over, and I'm, I'm thinking about, um, I think when, like, Center on Halstead uh, first opened as a resource uh, for queer youth in the city, uh, I think as more South and West Side youth uh, wanted to access that, I think that the neighborhoods up there had a hard time with the youth, uh, you know, being youth, being sort of loud and rambunctious and, you know, boisterous and, um, and all that, and I think... Um, I think that's that example always sticks in my head about sort of forgetting what it's like to be young, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I will say I don't I don't necessarily know I don't necessarily know what that process is where you forget um, one that you were young, and two that uh, that there's an intentional voice there. You know, as you you mentioned this quote. Um, I, I don't use the term minority communities. I use the term minoritized communities uh, for a similar for a similar reason because this has been an intentional process. Um, so a lot of the the communities that uh, that are affected most by uh, community gun violence are minoritized communities. Um, youth are minoritized uh, communities and voices. Um, so I think it it is a process of um, of lifting up voices, and I think. You know, the difference between sort of equity and equality, right, is that um, equity may seem uh, unfair to others, but it's because there's a lot of, there's a history that has to be addressed to, to elevate minoritized voices. Yeah, so thank you for elaborating on that. I think that uh, you brought up a lot of good points, and I, I now want to direct a question to Valerie, because I think that where we could probably all agree is that a lot of times the issue of gun violence is ignored by a lot of people because they don't think it personally affects them. And it's often considered an issue that only applies to groups that are historically marginalized. So whether that be communities of color or people suffering from mental illness and the list goes on. So Valerie, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with trying to reach out to people who do not see this as their issue. They do not see it as something that affects them personally. And what has been your approach to trying to get people to care? Well, fortunately, my experience with uh, within Moms Demand in every town hasn't been where people don't care. I, I think people came to the issue for different reasons. I think people became involved with moms because historically how moms was even created, um, Shannon Watt created moms as a Facebook chat group the day after Sandy Hook occurred. Um, She was a stay-at-home mom, and so she primarily was the uh, epitome of what people have associated moms to be, um, that suburban um, white woman who is horrified at what happened in this country and, and the fact that we can't even send our children to school and have them be safe. 
And so people came to the issue for different reasons, and they stayed because they got to know people like me and other survivors and came to care about the overall issue. But I have also asked the question of a lot of the volunteers for mom to challenge their thought processes. Would you be involved with this movement if it had started as purely a black and brown issue? And and, and to think about what your motives were for coming to the table and think about what your motives are for staying at that table. So basically my experiences have been a little different, but time and time again, we hear when a mass shooting occurs that that shouldn't happen here. Um, People are surprised that it happens in their communities. And because the implicit bias behind that is that, well, we don't live in the ghetto and and we don't live in an urban environment and we moved um, to be safe. So how could we be experiencing gun violence? But the very definition of gun violence is when a shooting of four or more people occurs at any given time. And so when you take that definition into account, Chicago has mass shootings on a weekly basis. So I think people have to move away from it couldn't happen here and and begin to care because as long as it's, it's being perceived as a black and brown problem, it gives people an out. They feel like, well, it's not personally impacting me. I don't have to care. Um, and, and, and that's what they do in their communities, um, the proverbial they, um, or those people. That That's what they do in their communities. And, and I think that to the credit of Moms Demand is that we have changed that narrative in a lot of different ways because it's no longer just about mass shootings that occur within a school. It, it's people who got involved for that reason, like I said earlier, have stayed because they have come to realize and they have gotten to know people and they now understand that what happens in an urban environment impacts all of us. It affects all of us. And how easily and how readily available guns are to obtain and that if we want to keep ourselves and our families safe, then we need to care about what's going on in the urban environments as well. And people have to recognize what their biases are, even when they feel like they don't have any. We all have them. And and they have to recognize that they do have them and to own it and begin to make the take the necessary steps to change those biases. Most people would say, I'm not I'm not prejudiced, I'm not racist. And it's really not about prejudice or racism. It's about implicit biases. It's about how we've been taught to believe about the things that occur in urban communities versus suburban communities. It's it's what people really do have to face, and they have to be honest about it. Because only until they're honest about what they feel and how they feel about what goes on in the communities, nothing's going to change. I've noted particularly that the Chicago Gun Violence Research Collaborative is very data-driven, um, and every town is very data-driven. I, w- I was on a call last night where they have developed a whole um, toolkit of statistics that we can access at any given point on any given state and narrow it down to any given city about um, 
how much gun violence occurs. They break it down by homicides, suicides, domestic violence. So we're also a very data-driven organization. And, and to begin to take that data and do something with it is the issue and the problem for where I sit. So uh, I'm glad that Valerie brought up implicit bias. That was awesome, Valerie. Thank you. Um, because it really narrows down uh, the whole theme of two Chicagos. It's the street, Streetersville versus Inglewood. You know, um, Jefferson Park versus Rosalind. You know, well, that's not my problem. I don't have to deal with that, you know, that urban um, perspective until you get affected by gun violence. You know, I, I think it's um, one thing in the collaborative that came up that we wanted to address was, you know, apathy. You know, how do we, you know, reach the other audience of Chicago, even though they're in their you know, their side of the city and, and may not be directly uh, affected. They may not be directly affected, but how do we reach them? So we uh, collaborated and thought about uh, opt-ed um, to, to write so they can read and under, so they can understand what's going on within these urban environments. You know, when you're talking about gun violence, it's, it's, within this country it's natural to talk about mass shootings, you know, because everyone's affected by mass shootings. I was down in DeKalb, Illinois back in 2008 when we had a mass shooting on campus um, where five students were, were uh, murdered and he, um, the shooter ended up uh, taking his own life. Um, and I seen the, the direct impact of how it affected the entire community. It didn't matter what background you came from. It didn't matter you know, what uh, race you were. Everyone was affected. Everyone was mourning. Everyone was scared. You know, it was surreal to everyone. That's a real effect. That's a natural effect. That's a human effect. That just makes us human. You know, and I think we all have to look at that we're all human. We're all going to be affected by uh, this issue of someone taking another person's life. You know, you want to look at it on a moral perspective. You want to look at it on a policy perspective. However, perspective you want to, you know, kind of wrap your brain around this is a major issue that we all need to address, then do that to take action, you know. So I'm glad that there is collaboratives amongst policy when it comes to mass shootings within the United States and urban gun violence. The issue with connecting the two is politics. You know, when you think of conservatives, you know, you think a liberal, you know, um, the politics behind things, oh, you're going to take my guns away. Well, we need more gun control. You know, that issue always comes up and we always are, you know, separated and segregated by that specific issue, you know, versus looking at the, you know, the effect of gun violence, and how it, you know, impacts people like Valerie, impacts people like uh, the NIU community. My, my brother was literally just shot in North Chicago a couple of weeks ago. He's uh, recovering now, but how it, I know how it affected my family. You know, almost 20 plus years ago, my cousin was taken from us, you know, on the south side of Chicago from a gunshot uh, incident. And, and I know how it affected my family. If you look at these mass shootings and you look at these um, urban shootings, you know, they're all connected. Someone's impacted. Someone is grieving, you know, someone is dead, you know, and that's a real issue. 
And we all have to look at that, look at it in that perspective. And then maybe more support will come in because it's not two Chicago's, it's just Chicago. We all are affected by this issue. One of the issues in talking about community gun violence uh, so much is that it, it occludes the, the sort of core issues, right? Um, uh, the political violence that happens in these communities uh, every day, um, right? If a budget is a moral document, um, you know, we have seen in Chicago um, the sort of amoralness of some of the budget decisions that, that create the, the issues that uh, leave these communities minoritized, right? If you're going to close the school and open a police training barracks in a school, that is politically violent to that community. Um, if you are not going to invest in communities, that is politically violent to these communities. Um, and what we need sort of is not just the attention on, uh, on community gun violence, um, but in many ways that is the thing that takes us away from looking at the, the root causes and the fundamental issues um, that continue to um, keep these communities from developing um, day after day. Yes, there is a ton of assets, but then there are also a ton of decisions that are made um, in City Hall and at state levels, federal levels, uh, that, that keep these communities from, uh, from reaching their, their promise. Thank you all for sharing that. And Terry, I wish your brother speedy recovery. I'm sorry to hear about that. No, thank you. And so I want to shift gears a bit. Uh, based on our conversation, I think we, we all recognize that a lot of community members, a lot of communities as a whole, are experiencing trauma in the aftermath of gun violence. And health systems are starting to recognize this issue, and some are implementing trauma-informed care, although even when they do, they don't always require trauma awareness training among all their staff. But there's also a problem of people not interacting with any sort of trauma-informed care until they enter the hospital. And so these hospitals are recognizing that violence begets violence, yet the intervention often doesn't happen until someone's already in the hospital. Valerie and I have talked about before how uh, when we were exposed to gun violence, we didn't really know what resources were available throughout the city. And so this is a question open to any of you, but what are approaches that you think that we could take to improve the connection uh, between when someone has been exposed to gun violence and connecting them to trauma-informed resources? I think the CTU, who was just on strike, addressed this issue publicly. You know, one of the issues that they had uh, was uh, creating uh, 209 additional social worker positions and uh, social workers being assigned to every school, uh, along with a case manager and 250 additional nurses uh, by the end of their contract. That's huge. You know, that's having that support of someone that's in the school that's going to connect them directly to the resources. They also wanted $1.5 million in recruiting and tra uh, training programs for cl clinicians and another $2 million and tuition and licenses uh, for uh, nurses so they can create that pipeline to like grow their own teachers and environments within within the uh, schools. So connecting those resources so when these students are affected by trauma within their community and their and their neighborhoods, uh, they will have someone right there on site mm -hmm. that can help them 
connect with those resources. They know ex the, these social workers are amazing. You know, they know exactly uh, the resources that's local. You know, we're not talking about resources across the city. I'm talking about local resources that they can connect the student with. Um, also, the, the Chicago Department of Public Health has a trauma-informed uh, transformation plan in place right now where they go out within uh, town halls and they uh, inform the community of the prevalence of trauma and the impact of the event, um, the recovery of trauma, uh, protective uh, factors, uh, self and collective care, and then uh, becoming more trauma-informed. That's a great program, you know, in my, in my belief, uh, because it's informing uh, the community that, hey, you, this is trauma, you have been affected. One more um, plan that I want to mention is uh, under the Quality of Life Plan, uh, Get Your Mind Right, which is a nonprofit organization, uh, community-based organization out of Inglewood. Um, I'm sorry, um, Think Outside the Block. Uh, they have a campaign called Get Your Mind Right. Um, and that's informing the residents of trauma. What is trauma? Um, the idea was born out of the task force. Uh, and it's to inform the leaders within the community uh, to think about uh, proactive ways to address mental health and wellness within the neighborhood. All right. Um, they wanted to initially start speaking with the residents, and but uh, it actually went bigger than that. You know, they started launching a Get Your Mind Right campaign. If you look up hashtag Get Your Mind Right, they actually have videos that's um, like intertwined with some of the initiatives that they're involved with. Um, and it's just to let, to let people know that your current traumatic uh, stress disorder is real. You know, you how do you deal with these uh, issues? Here are the resources that can connect you directly to the uh, uh, to deal with this uh, trauma that you may be facing. And I, I think that those things are important to have that person at the front line, like these social workers, or have that person uh, within the community to be already informed, already geared with the resources themselves that can help people that may be dealing with trauma. If I can jump on, uh, this sort of goes to the to the very earlier and, and perhaps fundamental point of um, there are great things happening in communities right now, but they're not being publicized or you're not being made aware of them. Um, a program that we've partnered with and has hosted uh, the collaborative uh, several times uh, is I Am Able. Mm -hmm. um, and they have sort of trauma-informed block captains. Um, and uh, they, they work very hard in, in, you know, I think uh, Reverend Dr. Vessel is probably, uh, who's the um, head of that organization, is probably best to talk about this. But um, they've worked very hard to make sure that there is trauma-informed uh, programming infused throughout that. Um, and, you know, this could end up, uh, you know, being a model that could be spread uh, larger than uh, North Lawndale, um, larger than I think they, I want to say they've got nine blocks, but I'm, I'm probably... They started uh, off with nine blocks, yeah, as you said. It, it's more uh, simple or easier to, you know, just mm -hmm. narrow it down to nine blocks. Yeah. It's more controlled, and then sure. it's spread out. Yeah, and so like this might be a model that would work well in other parts of Chicago, but it's again a matter of like how do we build capacity um, to demonstrate the effectiveness uh, of that, to sort of publicize the effectiveness, the effectiveness of that, and sort of develop uh, more work around um, how that can be implemented in other in other communities.
one last thing about trauma-informed care. I, I know that um, having social workers placed in the schools was a, a big issue um, for the last teacher strike, but it can't just be any social worker. It, it has to be social workers who are trained in, in the area of trauma and, and what that looks like. Um, many of, of, of the students who are coming into the school system or who are already into the, in the school system are, are traumatized. And we have to recognize that we don't call it PTSD, but that's exactly what they experience as PTSD. So it's not just a matter of just having a social worker there. It has to be a specialized social worker who has specialized in dealing and being able to recognize PTSD and trauma and, and then knowing how to deal with it. That's a great point. And I think uh, to add to that, as Noam mentioned, uh, considering the city budget or the, the budgets we have in place for resources, it would be great if we could see something around developing a standardized trauma awareness training that could be implemented, especially in any place that interacts with the public or with young people such as schools, hospitals, and so on. So I want to thank you all for joining us today. I think this is a great conversation, and I really appreciate all your contributions to it. Uh, I know that we want to end on a more lighthearted question, but I wanted to give you an opportunity if you'd like to share one final thought on the topic of gun violence. Um, I just want to leave um, just five points that um, Dr. Reverend Vessel, since you brought her up with I Am Able, um, the last time I spoke to, uh, to her, uh, she had mentioned five tips when it comes to community-based uh, participatory research. Uh, she said, be a part of the sustainability, uh, be resourceful, uh, be honest and be real with the residents. Um, leave a product, you know, something that's deliverable, um, and then leave them better from where you found them. I think I thought that was a great tips um, uh, to leave when it comes to researcher, academic institutions, um, you know, corporate uh, institutions, and any type of institutions that's coming in um, doing this work uh, to address gun violence or any other disparity that these neighborhoods deal deal with daily. Um, because it, it, it helps us support each other and build that capacity. And that's exactly what's needed, building the capacity to help uh, the communities deal with the issues themselves and then address it on a policy level. I'll yield mine to Valerie. I think we'll get there. I, I think that we can't quit. And if we really want to save our communities, um, black and brown, even the suburban communities who are experiencing a, a high rate of trauma these days, if we, if we keep it up, if, if we keep moving and we keep pushing forward, we will get there. Uh, I have to be hopeful that we will. I think I would just say we're, we're not going to arrest our way out of this. Um, you know, if we're going to go far on this, we've got to go together. Okay, now to end on a more lighthearted question. Uh, and Valerie, I'll have you go last because I, I'm not sure that you heard the question in advance. But uh, please share any book or podcast recommendation that you have. And it does not have to be related to the topic we've discussed today. Almost daily, I, look at, I listen to Eric Thomas, who's a motivational speaker, and also Les Brown. They are so motivational uh, when it comes to uh, just dealing with everyday life. Um, as far as a book... Natalie Moore, she wrote The South Side. It just talks about 
uh, the segregation um, within uh, Chicago, specifically on the South Side. I'll admit I'm I'm down the Disney Plus rabbit hole, <laughs> uh, so I've finished, uh, you know. Aladdin. Um, I, uh, I've seen Baby Yoda a bunch of times um, <laughs> with The Mandalorian. Um, but I think um, three thing, three sites that are or three resources on this topic. Um, one, I think the WBEZ Every Other Hour podcast uh, is really fantastic. Um, there's a new movie that uh, starting to make the rounds as a documentary uh, called Chicago at the Crossroads. Um, I'd keep an eye out for that. Um, and then lastly, my sort of uh, go-to website for uh, data on this sort of at a daily spot, and I apologize for the name of it, uh, is uh, Hey Jackass. Um, <laughs> I think it's heyjackass.com. Um, they do a fantastic job of sort of being a data aggregate um, and really displaying the data in, in uh, very accessible ways uh, on gun violence in Chicago. And, um, you know, as, as I'm sure that they note, you know, we just had our first day, our first 24 hours without a shooting since March. Uh, so we got that going for us. I really am not, don't listen to a lot of podcasts. And, and if I need to, because I'm so into the work, my reading is really fluff. Um, and and I'm not ashamed to admit that <laughs> at all. Um, it's interesting to hear um, the gentleman say that Aladdin, um, when the movie first came out many, many years ago, that was my son's favorite movie, favorite. Um, and I actually took him to see Aladdin on ice, and he knew the whole movie word for word. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting to hear that come back in another capacity. But I do read, and, and, and I read mindless fiction because I, I have to decompress away from the seriousness of what I do outside of what I do for a living. But one of the most powerful movies I've seen in a very long time, and I'm really not a movie person, is The Hate You Give. Valerie, I would have loved trading lines from Aladdin with your son. Uh, I'm, I'm impossible to watch that movie with. <laughs> I know. And, it, 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 and I'm just going to say this before I end. When I took him to see Aladdin on Ice, we went to a matinee, and it was an older couple sitting in front of us, and he was talking along, and he was singing along, and they turned around, and they tried to shush him. I'm like, no, you don't shush my son. If you really want not want to be bothered with kids, come to the evening performance. Don't come to the matinee. <laughs> You don't get to tell him to, to be quiet. And I'm like, keep singing, son. Keep going. Well, thank you all so much again for joining us today. Uh, we are honored to have you all be part of this conversation and to help us carry on the conversation as well. Thank you for listening to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. Please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more or getting involved in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, visit our website linked in this episode's description. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can contact us at skinnytreespodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at skinnytrees312 or visit our website at skinnytreespodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, 
Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content. Keep singing, son. Keep going.